This is a Triple J podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode of Science with Dr. Carl. In this episode, we'll get into questions like why do the deceased still get goosebumps? And can we smell sickness? Plus, you'll meet the Rainbow Chasers. I'm Lucy Smith. Let's do it. Dr. Carl, we are getting into science. What's been on your mind this week? What's something you've learnt? Uh, I've learnt that I have put the how to put your name onto a rocket which is going to arrive at um, Jupiter and look for life in the 11th of April in the year 2030. Okay, so we know that people can, you know, purchase or at least give their name to stars. What's the deal oh, with no. this? So, uh, naming a star is a scam Yeah, because uh, they're not officially named. People are just taking money from you for no good reason. Here you can go onto the NASA website and NASA and then Clipper, C-L-I-P-P-E-R. And that is a spacecraft that is going to be launched in 2024, next year, and will arrive on the 11th of April in the year 2030. That's about seven years from now. And so I'll put everybody in our family, including the ones that are six months old, two years old and regular humans, and in seven years, their name on a little memory stick will arrive at Europa and go looking for life. What? So the whole Chris and Nikki family is going to be going to Saturn? At least your name. To Jupiter, yeah. yeah. Or but, to Jupiter. Yeah. So I've been to various places. I'm already past Pluto. I'm also in orbit around the sun on the Parker <laughs> spacecraft. So NASA gives you this opportunity. So put your name onto any spacecraft. In this case, go for Clipper. Clipper, okay. And okay, what that's else? the first thing. Second thing, last week we were talking about... Now, remember, I forget her name, but she was in the surf. Her socks got wet or her jeans and they never really dried out. Yes. And I wrongly said that it's the salt that um, absorbs the water. There's regular salt, sodium chloride, but there's magnesium chloride, which makes up 10% of the salt in salt water, and that is the hygroscopic element or hygroscopic chemical. Thank you, Dr. Milan, for setting me straight. So regular salt is pretty fine and it won't absorb water, but if it's got magnesium in it, it will absorb water. And you, and you get a lot of um, salt out of the ocean. Uh, what they do is they have drying pits. They've been doing this for two and a half thousand years. They let the water run in at high tide, then block it off, let it evaporate away, and they scrape it up. In America, you're allowed to call virtually anything sea salt um, because it eventually, it, way, way back, it got laid down out of the oceans anyway. So, um, and there's various things, you know, like Tibetan pink salt and all that sort of stuff, which should align your Kundalini's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Thank you very much, Dr. Milan, for setting me straight. And now to the audience. Now to the audience, to our questions. We've got Dee in Wollongong kicking us off. Dee, you got a question about something that happened yesterday. Yeah, g'day, doctors. Um, I was just wondering about the uh, winter solstice and when it actually happens because my mates are having a winter solstice party tonight and I had a, a mate at work say it actually happened last night but is today the shortest day and I wondered if you could give us some insight, Dr Carl. Oh, it varies each year. So it's officially defined as when uh, you have the longest uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, the longest day and the shortest night. And I don't know ex the exact moment at which it's defined. With the equinox, it's fairly easy because that's the moment at which the Terminator, which is not Arnold Schwarzenegger, but rather the shadow um, uh, running across from the uh, between night and dark on the Earth from the sun. So part of the Earth by the sun, parts in the shadow. And as the equinox is when... The line 
of day and night runs exactly through the north and south pole. Um, and that's sort of March, September. Now we're at the uh, solstice. And in fact, that's um, I chose this day specifically to get married on. Really? Yeah. I rang up my wife, Mary, and I said, hello, darling. Look, um, I'm in Southeast Asia injecting opiates into a young red-headed woman. And I want to know, I can't inject into the buttocks, but I've forgotten why because I'm sleep deprived. Where am I supposed to inject? And by the way, will you marry me? Then the phone went dead. And that was my wedding proposal. Oh, my gosh. And then we got married in Norway on the longest day of the year, which is, it varies from year to year. September, it was uh, June 20 when we got married in 2006. And... um, I chose that day because in the same way that we actually got married slightly inside the Arctic Circle, so in the same way that the sun would not set inside the Arctic Circle, so too the love would not set on our marriage. Oh. And my little daughter Lola said, that's impossible. She was eight years old. That's impossible. The sun has to set. You're not making sudden sense. So th- this is all to cover up the fact I don't know the exact moment at which the solstice is defined. I'm sorry. <laughs> I failed you. I heard it was yesterday, that yesterday yeah. was the shortest day of the year. On this side of the equator and longest on the other side and vice versa, they, they sweep switch over. So I don't know the exact moment and we'll go looking it up on Wikipedia or something. Okay. I'll, 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 go. I'll go might looking be celebrating the a day late. It, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Any chance for a party is good. Partying exactly. is good. Don't forget that. CJ in Mackay, what's your question? Hello. Um, I'm just wondering um, when people have uh, anaphylactic reactions, what's actually, what's actually happening? I've done a bit of Googling, but all the answers I'm getting, it's just not clicking for me. So what happens when people go into anaphylaxis? Now, CJ, did you actually try Wikipedia? Uh, No. No, that's okay. You'll normally get better luck out of Wikipedia for things like this. So anaphylaxis is where your body overreacts. First thing, you get something being presented to your body, like, for example, peanuts or pollen, and really they're not going to kill you in most cases, but in certain cases people have had their immune system oversensitized. So the first thing is they get presented with the antigen. The second thing is that the immune system then starts swinging into action to wrongly protect against this. So um, the word anaphylaxis, ana from the Greek meaning wrong, and phylaxis to guard. And so you're doing a wrong guarding or protecting. And you're making too much of a reaction, especially in the immunoglobulins. There's five of them. IgA, G-A-M-D-E. So it's IgE, which is on surfaces. That's the one that's being involved. So the peanut or the pollen is coming to your surface of your body, like your mouth or your lungs. Then things called mast cells kick into action. Mast cells, named like the mast of a ship, they contain all sorts of chemicals and they go into a thing called degranulation. These are immune system cells. You'll find this out in Wikipedia. They spit out their com- their contents. And this then sets off massive inflammation. In a bad case, you get such swelling that your airways close down that you can not breathe anymore and die. It can be really, really bad. Your eyes can swell up so you can just barely see out and people look at your face and you see these tiny little slits. And the treatment is usually adrenaline, a thing called an EpiPen. They've got a certain lifespan. We've got one at home uh, for various relatives. Um, so that's a bit of a background info. Does that sort of help, CJ? It does, yeah, thanks. And how's the adrenaline fix that? Like, what's it? Does it force the antigens out of the cells or... Oh, why does it stop the inflammation from happening? Yeah, how does that actually work? I don't know, but this is homework for me. I'm guessing that what it's doing 
is getting you ready for the sympathetic nervous system response. So your blood vessels open, your airways open, and so it counteracts the swell, the, the, the constriction. But the pathway by which it works, I do not know. More homework for me. Thank you very much. So what? We've got winter solstice now that you've got to look up? Yeah, or, winter or at least to, The exact moment of. Well, Mitch from Geelong is saying the winter solstice is defined by the point of time in which the South Pole is facing the furthest away from the sun. So say that again. The South Pole is at its maximum tilt away from the sun. Mm. And, and Mitch, what, what time did that happen? Have you got an exact time for us? I know. Okay, we want a time. If somebody could ring in with a time or text us on, magic number. Oh four three nine seven five seven triple five. We've got Anita in Brisbane right now. Now, Anita... Your question centers around a topic which I feel like has been a bit of a, a bit of a conversation recently. I've certainly seen articles about this. What's going on? Yes, um, I've recently been diagnosed with a condition called lipedema. Um, it's a genetic thing, I believe. And I was just wondering if Dr. Carl had any information or whether he's aware of any research into what actually causes the condition and how it manifests. Um, what are your symptoms that you're having? Are you having little collections of fat around the place? Yeah, so um, I have extra wide thighs, um, extra wide butt, um, upper arm as well. I have a lot of pain from time to time. Um, I bruise really easily. The skin itself gets really dry and can actually split. Um, so it's just sort of something that, like I've done my own sort of research, but I was just wondering, because it's Lipedema Awareness Month this month, whether there was something that you might be able to do a bit more investigation um, and just putting it out to the, the general female community, because it's a female issue, um, as to just be aware of it and how we can actually progress some research into being able to get a proper diagnosis. Ah, I've got a very specific version of a fat disorder called lipoma, L-I-P-O-M-A, which is little tiny collections of fat on my skin. Um, and they're between about three and five millimetres in diameter and it's genetic. Lipedema is different with the edema meaning swelling. Mm. As you said, it uh, primarily affects women, typically worsens during puberty, pregnancy or menopause when you've got a change in the hormone levels. And you've got an abnormal collection of fatty tissue that is resistant to diet and exercise, and that's the bummer. Yes, that's, right? that is that is the bummer. <laughs> so you can have sometimes associated with pain, sensitivity to pressure. Do you have that? Yes, right. yeah, a lot. Um, I have three six-kilo cats, and they all decide that sitting on my thighs is the best place, and oh. that's where it really hurts. <laughs> Ah, and do, so, yeah. it, it usually progresses and gets worse with time, which is another bad thing. That's correct, yes. Um, there's all sorts of, um, that's the thing, there's so much misinformation, but trying to follow directors or um, um, anti-inflammatory diets and things like that, it just gets, it's a minefield to decide what food is right for you and what food's not right for you. Um, oh. And in the meantime, trying to actually move can be quite painful. 
Uh, look, I, I'd start with Wikipedia and start yeah. reading the medical sites. Not Avoid Google. Go to things like the Mayo Clinic in America and try to stick to medical sites specialising in this and you'll get closer to an understanding. Yeah, it's yeah. good you're bringing it up, so Anita. It, There's a great article yeah. on ABC News, Lipedema, the painful condition you've probably never heard of. And that's the thing. A lot of people don't get diagnosed early on because they're just told by doctors that, you know, they're just gaining weight during puberty or they're just pear-shaped uh, and that's just how exactly. it is. Yeah. Yeah, so it's Lipedema so, yeah. Awareness Month. Anita, thank you so much for bringing this to our My attention. Pleasure. Cheers. I just hope that anyone that has it, um, one, I wish them well, but two, I hope that they can get support and that together we can find a at least a, a way to diagnose it properly and then maybe some way of curing it. Now, Dr. Carl, we were chatting through the longest day of the year with the winter solstice. Ah, and I have the answer. And somebody, really? And does the audience have the answer as well? Well, a lot of people telling you the exact time in New South Wales and Victoria and when it went down exactly. Mm-hmm. So, okay, what Andrea in Tweed Heads, Ben in Kyneton and Kat in Melbourne all saying Thursday, June 22, 12.57am. So that was slightly after midnight and I never really appreciated it. Like I knew the equinox was when the Terminator kissed the North and South Pole. So the solstice is when the South or North Pole is fur- pointing furthest away from the sun. And yes, there are some people who think that the Earth is flat. Go figure onwards. Thank you very much, lo- beloved audience. We love you. Alicia in South Australia, you've got a question about rainbows. What's up? Hi, I do. So the other day, South Australia was pouring with rain and beautiful rainbows came up and me and my boyfriend were actually trying to chase them. And we were curious because the closer we got, we thought we were so close to one, but it kept moving further away. So we're just wondering if you can actually catch a rainbow. Alicia, have you ever seen that show Storm Chasers? Oh, my God, yes, I have. I love, kind of me. <laughs> I love the image of rainbow chases and it's just you and your boyfriend just la, 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 chasing a rainbow, just, you know, yeah. sunshine. Dr. Carl, <laughs> can you chase a rainbow? Can you get to the end of a rainbow? No, and everybody sees a different rainbow. So, Alicia, you, standing next to your bestie, half a metre beside yeah. them, you are seeing a different rainbow. So you are looking at different raindrops in the sky. So this is how it works. Imagine the sun is behind you, so it's shining on the back of your head, and there's a shadow going straight in front of you from the bright sun. But in front of you, there's been a storm, and the sky is black, and that black means that the rainbow will stand out really well as opposed to standing out against the bright blue sky. So the sky is black and there's all these water droplets in the air. A beam of light comes and hits the back of your head and goes on, spreads and goes on each side, throwing the shadow in front, as I mentioned. But another beam of light goes off to the side, way off to the side, and it runs into some water droplets in the air at 42 degrees, I think it is, off to your left. And then they go into the water droplet, bend, hit the back wall, come out, and then they come and land on your eye. And if they're at 42 degrees off to your left, they give you red. And I think if they're 39 degrees, they give you blue or the other way around. It's it's something like that. It's almost 45 degrees. And if you take one step forward, you are now looking at another bunch of raindrops that are one metre further back. 
So you're always looking at a different rainbow from the people beside you. And as you get closer, it will move away from you. And you can see a full circle rainbow if you are on top of a very tall, skinny building. You see almost a full circle. And also if you're in an aeroplane and you're on the window and you're in the shade and you climb through the cloud cover and you go above and then if the sun is on the other side of the plane, you can look down and see the shadow of your plane on the clouds and around it is a perfectly circular rainbow. But as you get closer to it, it'll keep on moving away from you. So there's no pot of gold. I'm sorry. Wow. Thanks, Dr. Carl. That's all right. Thank you. (laughs) I still want to see that show, Rainbow Chasers. We got Rod in Tin Can Bay. Rod, what's your question? Dr. Carl, I used to be a funeral director for a lot of years and it always... I could never figure it out why a dead person still got goosebumps. Ah. I didn't know that this was a thing that happened. Yeah, and did you notice the fingernails appearing to lengthen a little? Mm, didn't notice the fingernails, but or I did notice the you know, goosebumps. definitely goosebumps. So goosebumps are remnants of when we used to have hair follicles all over our body, and there's still a few of them around. And what happens is that they are a, a, sort of like a, an, a not a, aborted, but a sort of mutated hair follicle, and they have a different structural integrity from the skin around them, and the skin dehydrates. So uh, normally they're flush, flush with the surface, the top of them is yes. flush with the surface, but there's the, uh, how many days after death would you begin to see them appear? Oh, uh, like it, all different stages. Oh. Yeah. Ah, yeah. and so were they really quite pronounced, like maybe a millimetre yeah, above the... And I, yeah, and I, I didn't know whether it was just because of the refrigeration or whatnot, but they, yeah, definitely um, very, very prominent. How, how, what was the most prominent you saw, like two millimetres above the surface oh, of the skin? No, I kind of like one millimetre, but like wow. very, very high goosebumps, yeah. And how many were there, uh, like say on the back of an arm or a leg, would there be like one yeah, or ten like, or a hundred? No, like, yeah, very, very, you know, covered the body a lot. Wow. Okay, so what I've heard is that um, the goosebumps and the fingernail growth and the scalp hair growth is related to they don't grow but rather the flesh dehydrates and pulls away from it. Wow. Is Look, there anything you don't know, Dr. Phil? Yeah, millions of things. Um, <laughs> uh, like what happens, why does adrenaline stop anaphylactic reactions? Yeah, when I is the that. winter solstice? <laughs> and, yeah. and when exactly is the winter solstice? <laughs> oh, I, until today, I did not know the exact definition. So thank you, beloved audience, lovely, loyal listeners. Thanks, Rod. We've got Bryony in Sunbury here. Bryony, what do you want to know? Oh, hey, sorry. Um so I was talking to my nephew recently about my five-year-old who was trying not to go to sleep and she asked me why the Earth is round and why are all the planets round and then my nephew said, well, Earth isn't actually even round anyway. And I was like, what? So I looked it up and it does sort of look like, well, Google says that it's sort of an oval shape. So is that true? And if so, how long has it been like that for and will it keep forming and why. Okay, let's just start off with the round thing. So imagine you've got the Pyramid of Giza in uh, in Egypt and it's a couple of hundred metres high. Imagine that instead of being uh, made of rock, it is made of ice. If it's made of ice and you scale it up to, say, four kilometres high, it will still look pretty pointy. But then keep going. Take it up to 400 kilometres high and then suddenly the points round off and it becomes circular. So if a a body is made of ice, 
it will become circular at around 400 kilometres in diameter. If it's made of rock, it has greater structural integrity. That's 600 kilometres. So they're the sort of the boundaries of when they become circular. And then with regard to the Earth swelling at the equator, I think, can you refresh my memory, Bruno? I think it was of the order of 42 or 44 kilometres more at the equator. Mm, I don't know. I don't remember numbers. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, but, but it's but definitely yeah, swollen yeah. at the equator, and that's due to the Earth having spun for billions of years, and so the rock, the lithosphere, will gradually swell out. So it's about forty something kilometres bigger across the equator than from pole to pole. The waters, however, move much more rapidly, and if the Earth were to suddenly stop spinning, then the waters would retreat, and they're being thrown up thanks to centrifugal force or centripetal force. Um, they're being thrown up a distance of eight kilometres. However, the deepest part of the oceans is only about five and a half kilometres. So therefore, we'd be left, if the Earth were to stop spinning, with a band of mountains around the equator with a minimum height of two and a half kilometres. Okay. That's a lot of stuff to throw um, into one answer, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to take notes then so I could answer, but, oh, yeah, no. Podcast. Maybe I can listen back to it. Later. That's it. You can listen back <laughs> via the Science with Dr. Carl podcast, wherever you get your podcast. If there's something you missed, if there's something you need to write down to pass on to someone else. We've got Natalie here on the Central Coast. Natalie, you got a question about the human eye. Hi. My question is if the Earth were completely flat and there were no obstructions in the way, if there was, say, a two-kilometre tall skyscraper, how far away could that be seen from on a completely flat surface? You sound like you're underwater, Natalie, <laughs> but basically you're asking if the Earth was flat, not an oval, as we just discussed with Bryony, if the Earth was flat, how far could the human eye see, you know, with no obstructions? Dr Carl. The atmosphere removes your ability to see stars on the horizon. So you can see this at night if you get... And by the way, I was listening to a podcast with an astronomer who specialises in taking photographs, and then they said, but there is... And they're from somewhere on the other side of the equator. And they said, but there is nothing to equal the experience of being in the Australian outback in winter on a cloudless, moonless night, and then you get the best possible Milky Way or sky you can see anywhere on the planet in the middle of Australia because Southern Hemisphere is better than Northern Hemisphere because we've got the Milky Way at us, and then South America and Africa, too cloudy, too smoky, Australia is the best place to see. How far can the human eye see in ideal conditions with no atmosphere in the way? Two million light years because the most distant object you can see with a naked eye is the Andromeda galaxy, which is two million light years away. Get one of those little apps like Starfinder or something and then look at it and you can just see this little fuzzy ball, then get some binoculars and you can see a whole different thing. So, um, But the air blocks out some of the stars. Uh, it's called the OAM or the optical air mass. So if you look straight above you, you're looking through a unit of air, we'll call it just one unit of air, and then when you're looking on the horizon, it's somewhere between about 20 and 30 units of air, and you can actually see this as you watch the stars at night, and you're watching stars maybe 15 degrees above the horizon, and you pick one that's not very bright, and as it gets closer and closer, it will undergo what they call extinction. The extra air will absorb the photons of light and nothing will get through to you, to your human eye. Binoculars will pick up a lot more. So how far can you see? Two million light years if there's no air. If there's air in the way, a lot less. Does that kind of get you started on that, Natalie? Uh, a little bit. So go it on. does go in up to the sky, but if you were looking directly across 
you know, the Earth's surface. Yeah. You just keep seeing. Well, you, you, <laughs> you mean... stars with, again. With, with atmosphere in a way, the atmosphere does absorb photons of light. Okay. Yep. So, but without atmosphere, you can see two million light years. Okay. <sighs> I think we got it. Wow, that was hard. <laughs> We got William on Yeagle Country. William, you've noticed something while you've been excavating. What's going on? So my question is, I've noticed that there's certain birds that eat insects, like magpies, kookaburras, and things like that. Notice that they can somehow sense or see our insects like below the surface. So when I'm excavating and I strip grass away, these birds will hang around close by, and then they can just jump straight in, pinpoint, bang, straight on the bug each time, and pull it out of the dirt. Mm. So I'm just wondering what oh. what's a bird what's a bird actually seeing, or what sort of vision do they have to be able to pick up that insect below the surface? And what sort of bird is it? Like kookaburras, butcher bird, magpie, those kind of things that eat grubs and whatnot. That's so cool. Because uh, the magpies are really clever. Okay, so the smartest um, pet ever known was Alex, which was an African mm. grey parrot, so that's a bird, and he was tested for over 30 years. Alex stands for uh, Al, something learning, experiment or something like that. He could speak, because parrots can speak, 100 words, could recognise yeah. 50 objects, could count, recognise quantities up to six, could distinguish seven colours, five shapes, understand the difference between bigger and smaller and same and different, and was the first and only non-human animal ever to ask a question. What was the question? What colour is that? <gasps> and the colour was grey. Uh, so birds are exceptionally intelligent. They've got very small brains, but they seem to be wired up differently. They also have really good eyes. So an eagle, if it was looking at Jupiter at night, could see the four moons of Jupiter. Whereas us humans, we have to use a telescope. Mm. So they've got really sharp vision. And they've got another thing going for them, which is they've got a higher flicker rate, flicker fusion rate. So with you and me, if I show you an image once every second, you just go blink, 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 boring. But if I show you 25 images in a second, your brain can't handle it and they fuse into continuous motion, whereas birds can go up to 50, 60, 70. So that means that if they're chasing some insect, they've got really sharply defined little blocks of vision. So you've got the combination of the fact that the birds are smart. Okay, here's Mr. Excavator Man. I know, I've recognised this countryside before. So they're thinking, okay, there might be something there. And they have got algorithms in their wiring to, to pick up insects instantly and they'll just swoop straight in. I've actually had the situation of a kookaburra stealing my hamburger <sighs> when it was maybe 20 centimetres from my mouth. So if you sort of put the thumb on my chin and my little finger out there, the the hamburger was where my little finger was and I just saw this flash of colour and then boom, between my hand and me was this kookaburra and it twisted, I could just see it twist, it grabbed the hamburger and kept on going and there I am with an empty hand. So these, they have got a whole bunch of wiring advantages so that they can in fact find insects and finding insects is just easy. Mm. Have they stolen things from you at all, from you personally, like your lunch window? Not anything like that. I just noticed them that they can just pinpoint things in the ground. I don't know if it was they can tell the different surface and that there's something underneath or if it's something they can pick up. They're very visually. smart. They're very smart yeah. and, and, and they can recognise the surface from time to time. It's in their interest. It's food. It's dinner. 
Harry texting in saying, this is the same with cultivating soil on farms. The hawks and crows are always flying around looking for insects to eat. Dave on Bribey Island saying, I'm a fencing contractor and every time we dig holes, birds come from everywhere to pick through the dirt. They know. Hey, they see it. They're ready. Us humans are giving them lunch. Hooray. We've got Ira on the Central Coast. Ira, Dr. Ira. what's your question? Hey, how are you? Um, my question is a poo and wee question, so mm-hmm. you'll love this one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm basically curious. Say you eat a lot of beetroot and then you go to the toilet and you do a poo and it comes out purple or red or whatever, and then you also do a wee, but your wee just stays the same colour. I'm wondering why the bladder or the kidneys or whatever it is filters colour but the bowels or whatever deals with your poop doesn't. Ah, so with food, it comes into your mouth and then into your stomach. It gets mushed around and then it gets squirted at two to three calories per minute. Yes, the stomach passes stuff on to be absorbed at a calorie rate, not a volume rate, but a calorie, two to three calories. And then in the small intestine, many nutrients are absorbed. It turns out that the beetroot colour is not absorbed, nor is it broken down, and so it will go all the way through. Now, with regard to the urine, the colour is due to a chemical from memory called urobiolinogen, which is a breakdown of haemoglobin. I'm trying to get my memory right on this. So you make the red blood cells. They have a life of about 120 days. Then they get picked up by the spleen and taken out of general circulation because they've lost their elasticity. They then get sent to the liver. And the liver breaks them down part of the way and then recycles a lot of the stuff. But there's a chemical left over which then goes in back into the bloodstream and it does not get removed. For, oh, sorry, it gets removed from the bloodstream into the urine by the kidneys. So the yellowish colour is a breakdown of product of haemoglobin. The body doesn't want to break down too much hemoglobin because it's an expensive chemical to make, but part of the breaking down part of the way so it can be recycled involves the production of this urobiolinogen. So the yellow colour of the urine is due to this colour, I think, from Chemistry 101, biochemistry. I could be wrong, but I'm thinking that's kind of right. Does that help, Ira? Does that help a bit, Ira? Yeah, yeah, that helps. So the kidneys filter colour, but the bowel doesn't, or the stomach Well, the the, the colour can be removed from the faeces by either being absorbed across the lining of the gut or being broken down, and neither happens to beetroot. And I remember my wife made once a brilliant diagnosis, which involved people having purple or or, or red wee and red faeces, and it turned out they were eating colourless beetroot chips which existed for a while. Yes, someone's saying science experiment at school, we ate a lot of beetroot beetroot, and our urine was pink. Ah, so we'll go across. And also um, asparagus will go across. Mm. But then that splits um, two ways. There's a two-by-two grid of people who can generate the stinky chemical and who cannot and people who can smell the stinky chemical and cannot. Uh, And so you, you can have all possible four combinations. And if you really want to experience it, go to a... A wedding in summer in Queensland when they serve asparagus on a hot day and then you go to the uh, men's tent and then you can smell the asparagus coming through maybe 20 minutes after people have eaten it. I think I told you this story once Uh, before, but uh, I, I once went to the toilet. And I did a number two and I looked down and it was completely black and I was just terrified. Ah. I was ready to call my mum. And then I realised the night before I'd had squid ink bread. Oh, wow. And then I just, oh, my God. (laughs) 
long time. So I, went, wow. I thought there was an issue. I thought there was an issue, but not nah, just squidding bread. Wow. Yeah. Right here we got Marcos on Nelson Bay. Marcos, what's your question? Oh, hi, doctors. Uh, my question is, are you able to smell the bacteria or the virus in your body when you're sick? I'm sure I've been, every time I get sick, I'm able to smell it. It's a very distinct smell. Yes. Uh, is it possible? Uh, yes. There, there are. All of us can smell to some degree or another. There's a small number of people, maybe one in a hundred, one in a thousand, who have varying degrees of hyperosmia. Hyper means over or too much, and osmia relates to the sense of smell. And these people will often end up in the perfume business or the wine business where a sense of smell is an advantage. So that may well be you and being able to smell these things. And I might have mentioned before, we found one case, only one of a woman who can smell Parkinson's disease in people 14 years in advance. So you may well be one of those special people and you can have yourself tested. I think there's um, – and then you can get a new career as a perfumier. <laughs> Marcos, how's that? Yeah, right. I'll, I'll have a go at that maybe. We've got Jen in Bendigo. Dr. Jen, what's your question? My question is about endocrine disruptors. I just wanted to know whether they're a real thing or whether they're a load of crap because um, I saw a relatively reputable – uh, account on Instagram, post about them and say that we should be avoiding things like scented perfumes and chemical cleaning products and plastic in our food, particularly if you're trying to conceive or having trouble. And I just wanted to know if it was true. Wow. Big topic. Um Yes, it turns out that many of the chemicals we throw into the water supply act as endocrine disruptors for creatures in the waters like fish. So endocrine, that means related to hormones, and what it means is that in the creature involved, a human or a fish, it has certain hormones to make it do this, that and the other, and we throw in chemicals into the water that then go into the body of that creature of a human or a fish, and then disrupt its normal function. And we've seen extreme cases of fish being born with three eyes or frogs with a different extra leg and stuff like that. Less so in humans because we're not exposed to it so much in the sense that we don't actually live in the water and we keep away from the polluted stuff to some degree and we've got slightly better regulations and apply to us than to the fish. But there are some chemicals in our society that are endocrine disruptors. It was thought for a while that the female-like hormones in uh, soybeans were endocrine disruptors, but now that seems not to be the case. There, I, I, I'm not too sure about this uh, Instagram account. Um, there are some cleaning products that are kind of nasty and you don't want to get them on your skin, but full-on endocrine disruptors don't know. But on the other hand, we did invent in the year 2021 the new word, Plasti Center being a mixture of microplastics and uh, placenta. And we started measuring from then microplastics in human females in their placentas in 2021. Uh. And that's a bad thing. Are they act also acting as endocrine disruptors? Perhaps. Bigger topic. Don't know enough. I'm sorry. More homework. Jared in Melbourne, what do you want to know? Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm just wondering... Uh, as we take natural resources out of the ground, like um, you know, oil to make petrol, and we burn it off into the atmosphere, it becomes a gas. Is the Earth changing its weight 
and ah. what, what impacts that has. Uh, funny you should mention that. I actually did a TikTok on that. Ah. Uh, and the bottom line is it just gets recycled. So you get stuff that happens to be underground, for example, coal, and then you burn it and you make carbon dioxide. And the carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere. It's a fairly heavy gas. However... We are both gaining and losing mass. We are gaining about 50,000 tonnes per year of meteors coming into the Earth's atmosphere and being incorporated into the structure of the planet. And we are losing about 90,000 tonnes of gases, usually very light gases, mostly hydrogen, a little bit of helium, carbon dioxide, oxygen, micro amounts of that being lost. We have measured some of the Earth's atmosphere on the moon, but really the Earth's uh, weight is pretty well constant. We are losing... So we are losing about 40,000 tonnes a year, but uh, by the time the Earth gets um, destroyed in five billion years, the Earth's mass will be still essentially the same because the Earth is so big. We've got Nick in Western Australia. Last question, Nick. What do you want to ask Carl? Oh, hey, how's it going? I was just wondering, are bees a hive mind? Me and my mate at work are always waiting about it. Yes, um, they have uh, a few genders. There is the female queen who has fully functioning ovaries and she pumps out more than her own body weight in eggs each day. Not so much the ruler but rather the slave of the hive. Then there's a few males, maybe a hundred or a thousand, who exist only to fertilise the queen once on her mating flight and then they're just booed out to die. And then there's all these females who are sterile and they will protect the hive. They have a kind of a hive mind and they will, if they do things like work in the gardens or in the nursery uh, or work as warriors. And if they're a warrior protecting the hive, they will then stab somebody coming in and then take a dive for the hive. And you're thinking, how do they benefit from it? Well, they themselves can't have any babies. And the only way that they can get their DNA to go down the line, we're talking from an evolutionary biology point of view, is by protecting the hive for their sister who is the single fertile female. So there is a kind of overall hive mind. And the weird thing is that each individual bee or, for example, an ant has virtually no IQ you can measure, but you put them together and they can have gardens and air conditioning and there, there is some sort of hive mind going on. Very deep question there, Dr. Nick. Thanks for listening to this episode of Science with Dr. Carl. And if you want a little more Carl and Lucy in your life, you can check us out via Triple J's Instagram and TikTok, where we've been answering some of your most asked questions. This week, we uncover how you can blow hot and cold air out of your mouth simply by changing the shape of your lips. Search at Triple J on Instagram and TikTok. Give us a follow. This episode was produced by Lou Hill, and I'll catch you next week. Dave Marchese here from the Triple J Hack team. Hey, if you love Dr. Carl's podcast like I do, you might enjoy the Hack podcast as well. Each day we bring you the news that matters to you, from the latest science on climate change to what's happening in politics and news around the world. The Hack podcast, it's your daily fix of the news you need to know. Get it wherever you're listening now.